So I was talking to Seth before, uh, before he left for Africa, and uh, he actually chuckled when I said, hey, thanks for leaving me with Revelation 10 and 11. <laughs> he sort of chuckled and said, you'll do fine. I'm like, okay. Um, interesting book. You know, I didn't, I, I wouldn't say that over the course of my Christian life that I ignored Revelation, but I was always kind of intimidated and, you know, uh, concerned that, uh, well, to have it right. And of course, that's been my prayer over the course of the last week, and uh, next week we'll be uh, in the next chapter in 11, but it reminded me of something as a kid that, that I, I love telling kind of a story once in a while. I get myself, my nerves to settle, but also lighten up the, the maybe the, uh, just the tense situation it can feel like to me. And, and then I was told by somebody that they, they liked my stories and uh, factoids that I share. <laughs> so in uh, 1960, uh, General Motors... You like them too, huh? Yeah. Uh, General Motors uh, recognized that they, they had a problem, and that problem was uh, this, this overwhelming amount of cars coming in from Europe that were taking huge amounts of market share. And uh, that car, of course, was the Volkswagen. And coming from Southern California, as I did, I mean, they were everywhere. Volkswagen bugs and beetles and buses and all of that stuff. And um, the, the real appeal there was the fact that they were lightweight, they were air-cooled, inexpensive to drive. Um, actually, if you ever drove a little old Beetle, they were fun to drive. Um, not much power, but they were fun. So GM decides they need to compete with this, this uh, behemoth that's coming into the United States, taking all of their market share. So they determined that they were going to develop an air-cooled car and so they did, and they developed a car that was, uh, and the reason why, air-cooled, of course, is lighter, there's less, limit, less parts um, necessary, and, uh, but they had a big problem with air-cooled engines, and that is overheating. And if you don't have that part of it figured out, you got a big problem, because those engines, they, they overheat, and that's it, they're done. So... The car was called a Corvair, and then I found this factoid quite funny, and that is that the name Corvair comes from a combination of two other cars that Chevy made, one being the Corvette and the other being the Bel Air. And I think that's funny because the Corvair is nothing like either one of those. Those other two cars are classic, and the Corvair was uh, just interesting, to say the least. So... In an attempt to be com uh, competitive, GM made a van and a truck model, the Corvair 95. The van was called the Corvair Greenbrier, and my dad had one. Not that we're real proud of that, but we had one. Um, it is probably by far the ugliest vehicle ever made, um, and you can Google it later if you like, but um, horrible-looking thing. <laughs> Anyway, Dad's Greenbrier, it overheated. What do you know? And so he needed to rebuild the engine. 
Now, my dad, he was a, a master carpenter, uh, worked in the Carpenters Union in L.A., and he was a superintendent of multiple huge projects. They were very well known within the Carpenters Union there, but dad was not a mechanic. So as a little kid, I'm 10, eight, 8 or 10 years old, I just remember this being very odd, never seen it before. My dad covered in grease and the garage just covered with parts, and this van backed up inside of the garage, because that's where the engine was, of course, in the back. Um, oil and grease everywhere, parts all over the garage. And then a few weekends later, lo and behold, there's an engine back inside of the van. And I, go, I ran out in the garage, I remember, because my dad had I heard him mention that he's going to fire this thing up tomorrow. And so as a kid, I ran out there. And there's my dad standing there, and he's got this thing in his hand. And he's looking at it with a very confused look on his face. And he sees me run up, and he has this thing that kind of looks like a, just a flat little tiny cookie sheet or something. And he looks at it, and he looks over at me, and I'm smiling and all excited. And so he throws it on the bench and says, well, let's fire it up. So my dad, he gets into the uh, van, and he turns the key over, and uh, this thing just fired right up, purred like a kitten. I was like, wow, check out dad, right? Um, and then a few minutes later, there was kind of a sputtering sound, and then a clunk or two, and then pretty soon, a bunch of white smoke, and it stopped running. Um, Little did I know, as amazed as I was and or confused at all the parts and the clutter for rebuilding an engine and what that required, um, apparently, Dad was confused as well, a little bit. Um, he had this strange cookie sheet thing that he threw on the, on the bench because he wasn't sure what that was all about. Turns out, um, it's one of those things that's pretty important in that engine. The strange-looking cookie sheet was a mystery to my dad, and apparently it had great importance. Much of what we read in the book of Revelation is mysterious to us, but it all has great implications and eternal significance. There's strange imagery, symbols, and metaphors piled and stacked upon one another, and it can be very complex often even challenging. So, but we must remember the words of Christ in Matthew 24, verse 36 through 39. He says this, But concerning that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. We have God's word as provided by the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the, the Apostle John. And there is that which can be known. And there is that which is yet a mystery. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. In the Bibles that are in front of you in the seat, that I believe is page 1033. And we'll begin and read the entire chapter. 
Now John writes this. Look at that. <laughs> Terrible. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire and he had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be revealed, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but then I had, but when I had eaten it, in my, it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So let's pray. Father, God, we need you. Father, we need your help. We need your guidance. We need your Holy Spirit. Lord, your word speaks of mighty angels and little scrolls and just all this imagery that oftentimes is so unsettling. God, be with us today. Open our eyes and our ears to hear. Give us a heart to understand your will and to do it. Father, we praise your name for the work that you are doing in and among us. We just ask that your hand would be on us now. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Revelation 10 and 11 verses 1 through 13 consist of a bunch of visions. And just as Seth had explained with the opening of the seals a few weeks ago in chapter 7, there's this interlude that takes place. It's a pause between the six and the seven seals that happened. Again, we have that same format right here. So the sixth trumpet in chapter 9 has sounded. And we come to chapter 10 and all of a sudden everything kind of comes to a halt and John experiences a number of visions. Here in chapter 10, this interlude, it begins. 
we have this mighty angel and this little scroll. And I will say this, I by no means claim to have all of this figured out. There are hundreds of other men who've written literally, literally millions of words, men much more learned than I, but this I do know. As 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, all scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every work. However, not all things breathed out by God are we to know or understand. For instance, we have just read such a thing. In verse 4, he says, seal up what the seven thunders said. I'm curious, but we don't get to know. You see, the mysteries found in Scripture are not a mystery to the God that we have been gifted to know through Jesus Christ. The mysteries found in Scripture are not a mystery to the God we have been gifted to know through Jesus Christ. So with that said, let us dive into what is known. So the book of Revelation is written in such a way that things are not always chronological as much as we would like things to be. This, we're, we're very much designed to have things happen in order. And when things don't happen in order, we're put off or we're confused or a little um, just uncertain of what's next. It could be described as a progressive parallelism. That is, the book is often covering the same ground, yet from different perspectives. And Seth has mentioned this before. Each time, it gives us further insight. The seals that we've been through were concerned with history from the vantage point of the earth looking to heaven. And now the trumpets, on the other hand, view the same history, but this time from heaven looking down upon earth. These two visions in chapter 10 and 11 provide us with an interlude before the cataclysmic description of the day of judgment, which is signaled by the blowing of the seventh trumpet. This interlude begins with chapter 10, and then next week we're going into the first 13 verses of chapter 11. And both of these chapters are quite unique. There are actually five unusual features in this chapter. There's two of them listed. I have here that are an unusual angel and an unusual act. Now to us, these images and descriptions given seem rather unusual. But to those living at the time of the Apostle John, that when he's writing this book, these things are much, probably much more familiar. The word of God that they were acquainted with was ripe with imagery. In verse 1, John says, I saw another mighty angel. This is just like he saw back in chapter 5, verse 2. Where if you remember, he saw a strong angel crying out in a loud voice. 
here in our text today is one of many areas of disagreement among commentators and theologians. Some would say that this angel is Jesus himself. And that's typically based upon the description given of the angel. It's wrapped in a cloud. It has a rainbow over its head. Its face shines like the sun. Its legs or feet are pillars of fire. My thinking is that this is John. This is what John says it is. It's another mighty angel. He, in my view, means angel. Also, if we look at Revelation going backwards and forwards, Jesus is never described as an angel in this book. But, again, there are things we know, and then there are things we don't know. My point is this. It doesn't really make a difference whether an angel who is acting as Christ's emissary or Christ himself There is something we can know about this figure. And that is that he stands with his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, this massive being. He demonstrates glory, power, and dominion over all the earth and all that is in it. That's the image that we need to see. It is an image of sovereignty absolute control. We see a mighty mighty angel in verse 2, indeed. Signaling total sovereignty over the affairs of the earth with a voice like a lion's roar, a terrifying sound, commanding the attention of all who hear it. It has become clear to us, I'm sure, by now that reading the book of Revelation requires some familiarity with the pages of the Old Testament. For John's first readers, the Old Testament was their Bible. And it goes without saying that they would probably have known the details in a way that we often do not. The book of Daniel and Ezekiel play an important part of shaping this chapter. I think it would be safe to say that the imagery here would have not been as strange to them as it might be to us today. Also, we have in verse 2 this little scroll. Now, some commentators have said that this is the very same scroll spoken of in chapter 5. The the scroll where the seals were broken by the Lamb. And it's my guess, because he uses the word little and because of what basically John tells us, in metaphorical language, what this scroll does to him and says to him, it would be my impression that this, this scroll is something different altogether. But we'll get to that in a little bit. The third thing that I see uh, from this scripture in terms of unusual features is it's an unusual answer. Verse 3, when the angel calls out with the sound of a lion's roar, the voice of the seven thunders speak. John attempts to write this down, write what he's heard, but he's forbidden to do so. Why? 
What is heard that can't be known? It's unusual. Since John is having these visions and this revelation to write it down so that we might know that the people that he's writing to might know the prophecy given to him, he's told, seal it up. Begs the question, why? What is it that was heard that can't be known and it's unusual? He's instructed to be a scribe here, right? So there's multiple explanations for this. I find it not, not comical, but almost funny to think that people would say, well, he's, he's told not to write it down because it means this. Where did he get that, right? It's not written down. It doesn't say. But there's all kinds of things said. And you know what? Some of them sound pretty good, right? Does the prohibition to write down what John has heard mean that some things in the future are not to be revealed in order that we might live more dependently on God? Sure. I think that's a good one. Um, is this another example of Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the secret things belong to God and we are to be content with that which he has disclosed to us in revealed will? Yeah, I would agree. Was the message so extraordinary that like Paul had heard in 2 Corinthians 12, the church has no business knowing it? Yep, probably. Are the seven thunders meant to be yet another parallel set of seven judgments along with the seven seals, trumpets, and bowls? Maybe. These are all suggestions that have been put forward by commentators, and they're good questions. And I, I have a technical theological term for these, and that is, it's God's stuff. I've said that often, and people kind of chuckle at it, but in my view, that's just God's stuff. It's okay to trust the Lord, right? So the fourth unusual feature is an unusual announcement. What we do know is that we clearly are not to know what the seven thunders revealed to John. However, what is clear is that this mighty angel demonstrates absolute dominion and authority over all of creation. The Lord Jesus is sovereign over all. Then immediately following the seven thunders, the angel swears an oath. And in verse 5 through 7, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, and there would, that there would be no more delay. This is reminiscent of Daniel 12, verse 7. There are two great images here. Just as the title of the sermon points out, we have the angel and the little scroll. And imagine, I get this picture of John here. He does this amazing thing. 
um, this massive, magnificent angel arrayed with just uh, glory coming from his face, a rainbow over his head, calling out with the sound of a roar of a lion. And John walks up to him and says, give me this scroll. <laughs> that shocks me. I'm like, what? Anyway, he takes the little scroll. But the angel had said, there will be no more delay. The mysteries of God will be revealed. Perhaps the seven thunders will roll as well, just as the seals and trumpets and bowls. One day, we will find out for sure. An unusual angel and an unusual act, this heavenly emissary has just demonstrated God's power and authority to soon return his creation back to what it once was. An unusual answer, an unusual announcement. Don't write this down. The book we read is one written down from a vision given, but don't write this down. Unusual indeed. The images of this text do tell us something that we can know, and that is following the seventh trumpet, the second coming of Jesus Christ is imminent. And then the last feature is an undeniable assignment. See, at this point, John turns his attention and he moves to the second of our images today, and that is the little scroll. Verses 8 and 9, And then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel, and I told him to give me the scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. John says to this angel, give me the little scroll, and I can't even imagine such a thing. I know John was instructed to, but that just seriously kind of blows my mind. Anyway, now, again, there are different opinions as to the substance of this scroll. Some have said that this scroll is the, is, has the same scroll with the seven seals that were removed back in chapter 5. Others say it is altogether a different scroll. Because of the message given to John by the angel to again prophesy and the, con- and the contents of the scroll of chapter 5 lay out the judgment God is unfolding, to me it seems that this little scroll is something different. Now, does it really matter? Probably not. An an undeniable uh, assignment is from God. God says, take this little scroll and eat it. I believe it is the message of God. It is the gospel. Looking back in Ezekiel, we see the same language used. Ezekiel is told in his vision to eat the scroll. And it will be as sweet as honey. John is told the very same thing. And both are told to go and prophesy to the people. Directly following eating that scroll. What is it there to go prophesy? What they just ate. 
The little scroll is the word of God, and as, as he takes it and he eats it, it is so sweet. It's sweet as honey. Is the gospel message sweet? Yeah. To the one receiving it, it is the sweetest thing you can ever imagine. Like the gospel message to the one that does receive it, it is that sweet. But after digesting it, after letting it settle into our soul, after it becomes a part of who you are, the gospel message can become very hard and bitter. Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which familiar text, we know it. And Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven has been given to me on earth and in heaven. So go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Why is obeying this command so hard? The gospel message is in fact very sweet, but it's also bitter. We prefer to be caught up and even trapped in our own self-made Christian ghettos than to go do the work and the pain and the struggle that it requires of us to preach that gospel, to proclaim it. It's not pleasant, quite often, not at all. The gospel message is hard. The task of presenting the need of a Savior to a people filled with lies and pride regarding their sin is a difficult and bitter endeavor. There is a reason why John is recommissioned at this point. The message he is asked to proclaim is a hard message. Just like Ezekiel, he's told to go proclaim this message and nobody's going to want to hear from you. Nobody. Go proclaim it. You know, I think as we go, I, I mentioned earlier uh, in our equipped class, I was approached at work by this woman, and it was, a, it was confrontational. And, and this is the world today. This is the world we live in today. Our, Christmas, our Christian ghetto that we've created, our little cocoon that we live in, is not the world that we're supposed to go proclaim the gospel to. And it's scary. It's not fun. But there's a reason why John is recommissioned at this point. Because we need to hear that message. We need to go. You need to go. I need to go. Just as God said to Ezekiel, Israel will not listen to you. There will be many refused to listen to the gospel message. Paul warns Timothy. In 2 Timothy... Chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers that suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring, suffering, do the work, of an evangelist fulfilling or fulfill your ministry. So is Paul talking to Timothy alone? 
No. See, the purposes of God in history have a quality about them that many, including us, might consider harsh or difficult, and from which we often turn away from them and remain in our Christian ghetto, our self-made comfort trap. So the gospel will be to John and any who proclaim it, be it Paul, Timothy, Peter, you, or me, both bitter and sweet. And I think the key to this is remembering its sweetness. I think we forget that. We forget how sweet this gospel message is to me. He left the 99 to come save me. That should bring a tear to your eye. John 3.16, very familiar passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But the word is bitter also. John 3.16, that we like to quote, continues. God's love to those who believe, but it further on warns as to the consequences of unbelief. Verses 18 and 19, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son, and this is the judgment. Also, as sweet as it is, the gospel can be bitter as well to believers. As we're confronted in our own sin, Paul, in 2 Corinthians, he confronts the church for their abusing the Lord's Supper. To the Galatians for their pride in Philippi, he names publicly two women for their disunity in the church. These are sour notes. But a faithful servant will proclaim the truth with tears in their eyes. It reminds me of the words of our Lord to the church in Smyrna. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. You see, the mysteries of God found in Scripture are not a mystery to the God that we've been gifted to know through Jesus Christ. So Christian, John was told in our closing verse that he's not done. There's more to do. Like the Apostle Paul, we have been told as well in the Great Commission, there is more to do. As we learn today, what we do know, our Lord is sovereign. He's mighty. He's fearsome and in absolute control. We have been given his word to devour it, to digest it, and then to proclaim it. Move away from the comfort and the isolation of your self-made Christian ghettos and see the sweetness and the bitterness of the gospel 
in the lives of the lost around us. And we know our precious king's arrival is imminent. Our work isn't done. But if, if you don't know who Christ is, the message, it's a scary one. There is an eternal damnation, an eternal judgment that will come. One day, you will face it. We all live for eternity. It's a question of where it is it you are going to live. So if you're, if you're not sure of these things, if you're not sure of your position before the Lord, seek out somebody, pray with them, get some answers. Don't leave here today without talking with someone. The work that we have to do, although I don't understand all there is to understand here in this book of Revelation, the things I do understand tell me enough. There's work to be done. Let's pray.